As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Forty-four games have been played, just seven left now. Welcome to the Zonal Marking Podcast, Euro's Notebook. Thank you for choosing to listen to us today. We're brought to you by The Athletic. Eight matches since we last spoke, half of which went to extra time. One of them went all the way to penalties. They saw 29 goals across the eight games, three red cards, and that really only scratches the surface. So delighted to be joined by Tom Warville, by Michael Cox, uh, and I'm Ali Maxwell, fresh from an evening, as is Michael at Wembley Stadium yesterday. Fresh, actually, probably the wrong word to describe us to uh, currently. But let's open the notebook. Uh, on this podcast, we're going to preview the quarterfinals. And in doing so, we can look back on any keynotes from the round of 16. It really has been a very entertaining week or so. Michael, how are you getting on? Yeah, good. Really enjoyed the second round, actually. thought it started a little bit slowly, but obviously the, um, when was it? The Monday with the two goal pack games. I mean, uh, that was one of the most exciting days of football I can remember. It was just brilliant. And uh, obviously, yeah, from an English uh, perspective yesterday was very good as well. So yeah, looking forward to it. And I think the quarterfinals are, are shaping up nicely. Clearly, Tom, we are all English people and therefore on something of a high after their 2-0 win rather against Germany on Tuesday night. In general, how did you enjoy the round of 16? Yeah, I thought it was great. Probably grew into it really after the first couple of games. But uh, yeah, that Monday, like Michael said, was was pretty special really, wasn't it? Just almost every time just kind of really, really, really wanting it to go to extra time because you just don't want the games to end, which is a lovely feeling. Uh, and then, yeah, England, of course, as well, which, yeah, I was watching it at a kind of pub down the road and it was absolutely rocking and it just felt nice to be back watching football amongst friends again. So, uh, yeah, can't complain at all. Well, I hope for the sake of this pod that you've both found the time to, to make some notes as we go, some tactical trends, some numbers, uh, all the good stuff as well. Let's start with what will be the first of the quarterfinals on Friday between Switzerland and Spain. Now, these two teams were part of that incredible night of Euros knockout football. Spain were 3-1 up against Croatia, pegged back to 3-3 before pulling away an extra time to win 5-3. And Switzerland themselves were 3-1 down to France before scoring twice in the last 10 minutes. They navigated extra time, unlike Croatia, uh, before winning, of course, on penalties. I mean, 
You guys do so much for The Athletic in terms of analysing these games, both written stuff on these podcasts, the Twitter spaces that you've been doing after the games as well. I mean, how hard is it to analyse, Michael, this sort of game where the pendulum of momentum seems to lurch from one extreme to the other every 20 minutes or so? Yeah, that kind of chaos is great to watch and not so good, I think, to analyse sometimes. I can often uh, find myself thinking I wouldn't mind a nice 2-0 victory where there's like a couple of differences between the teams. But yeah, I think another thing that's made different from uh, or difficult from my perspective is I think it was that game where there was 12 subs, you know, both sides went into extra time, both sides used six subs. So that was... It's just so many tactical changes and so many, uh, so many things you have to watch out for. And yeah, I do find it quite difficult, actually. But um, yeah, that game was was just brilliant. And, and to be fair, I think that game was interesting because it was chaotic, but there were reasons it was chaotic. I think both the shifts that both sides made, tactical shifts, particularly Croatia at halftime, tried to press higher up. I think that created a much more open game in the second half than it had been uh, before half time. But I wasn't expecting that at all. I mean, one, I expected Spain to be comfortable. And two, I just don't associate Spain games with you know, being end-to-end. They're about Spain controlling and sometimes they have defensive weaknesses, sometimes they struggle to convert their chances, but you don't really think of Spain as, uh, yeah, end-to-end, chaotic penalty box kind of thing. That was a big surprise. What do you make of the blend of this Spanish team? I mean, we saw the best of them against Croatia, but we also saw some weaknesses that were quite brutally pointed out by the brilliant Emma Hayes on ITV commentary as well, particularly the, the aerial prowess of their two centre-backs. Is that fair to say that Spain, like a lot of the other teams in the tournament, have some real strengths, but also plenty for the opposition to exploit as well? In in this case, Switzerland on Friday. Yeah, I, I agree. For me, that's the thing that makes international football so interesting. I mean, if Spain were a dominant club side, they could go out and buy players to solve the you know the weaknesses they have, but they can't do that, of course. That's the... That's the whole interesting thing for me with international football. And I think it's very clear that this isn't a coincidence. I think sometimes uh, an international side has a particular issue at, say, right back or left midfield. It's a bit of a coincidence. But Spain just produces ball players more than it does penalty box players. And it's no coincidence, in my opinion, that they're lacking at centre-back and centre-forward. And they've got lots of players who can play midfield, lots of players who can play between the lines. But just the kind of slightly old-fashioned, bulky players at either end of the pitch who are obviously more efficient than Morata and better at dealing with high balls in their centre-back. They're the players they're not producing and probably it's even more of an issue than it was 10 years ago. 10 years ago, they had PK and Poyle, of course. Ramos, of course, uh, was playing right back then, played centre-back. Almost felt it, towards the end of that game, they could have done with a, a half-fit Sergio Ramos, just as like a plan B centre-back to come on and head crosses away because they're really struggling with that aspect of the game. One thing we've spoken about on this pod before is left-footed centre-backs. And we discussed the fact, and it came to fruition in this game, that it's so rare to see two left-footed centre-backs playing in a back four. Uh, and that's what we had with Laporte, who moved to right centre-back, and, and Torres, uh, who played left centre-back. And isn't it funny how it just looks awkward, even though there's no particular reason why it should be any different to seeing two right-footed centre-backs playing in a back four, which, of course, we experience and have done uh, rather a lot. And that I thought that was a nice nod back to, to some of our conversations in the past. Tom, not, this, not, not a perfect Spain side by any means, but as you've mentioned on a couple of the notebooks so far, one thing they don't seem to have any issues with compared to some of the other more stodgy attacking teams is creating chances uh, in, in pretty much any which manner. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they've got a wealth of attacking wingers, wingers really, I mean, in Ferran Torres, in um, Pablo Sarabia as well, who I think were both excellent. Torres especially, someone who can play both sides, can play up top, just combines 
really nicely with the fullback that which is on the side he's playing on and Sarabia as well I've been really impressed with and he's someone that I think even going back to his Getafe days was putting up fantastic numbers back then moved to Sevilla again was just a very very good creator on on a kind of step down team who aren't as good as the Barcelona's uh, Atletis and, and, and Reals of the world um, and then again has had a bit of a bit part role at PSG but for Spain just looks really really solid so yeah I'm um, I'm impressed with them I think we can't recall this podcast without giving a shout to Pedri as well who just looks like he'll be running that midfield for the next 10-15 years really really good like ball carrier it's probably it's not really his passing range but it's more the choice that he makes certain passes where he, he kind of chips them into the box from the edge which I don't think you see many players you know try and execute that or, or can even execute that and he's done a few this tournament and they've been great to watch so um yeah, he's uh, he's great in the midfield and, and a real joy to to see him kind of pulling the strings and dominating things for Spain. We mentioned when previewing France against Switzerland that the Swiss team were maybe being slept on a little bit in terms of how they play as a collective and how, how much football they have as a collective played over the last 10 years or so. And it was some performance uh, in beating France on penalties. Of course, they went ahead in this game. They also went 3-1 down, came back to 3-3. Uh, again, in that way, it, it's quite hard to know where to start with this one. But Tom, I wondered what your sort of key notes were uh, on France against Switzerland and, and Switzerland specifically heading into this quarterfinal. Yeah, I was really impressed with, I mean, Harry Seferovic is such an obvious name because he scored two fantastic headed goals but it just showed that and it's probably the similar thing that we've spoken about with um, with Spain that sometimes you know you can have all the, the ball playing and ball carrying traits in the centre back you want but if they can't actually challenge in the air or or do the stuff that really they're mainly there for then it's going to be a problem and Seferovic completely dominated Clement Longley and I think the other was even Rafa Varane as well so he was he was I thought very very good but he's someone that has really found his level at at Benfica and obviously that's showing through at the national team as well uh, he's only ever scored 10 goals once before in his career before moving to Benfica and that was in 2014-15 and this season 22 goals last season I think he was injured quite a bit five goals but it, it, season before 23 goals again so he's kind of prolific but not a prolific at kind of the highest level in, in Europe really so I was absolutely impressed with him Steven Zuber as well the kind of left wing back has got four assists now I think that's the most of any player in the competition it's also equal to the the most we saw at Euro 2016 as well where Ramsey and and Ramsey that is and uh, and Eden Hazard got four apiece It, it just seems so obvious like they're going to go to him they're going to use him more than the right hand side because I think they've mixed up in Babu uh, he's not played all the minutes and Zuba's been a kind of ever present recently in the last couple of games Um, and yeah it's an obvious crossing threat Seferovic is an obvious target and really no one's kind of looked to close that down so I think looking ahead to the Spain game that is just such a big thing for Luis Enrique to try and control because they're not great at the back and Seferovic is is very good in the air. It's been fun doing this with you Tom and understanding who you have soft spots for um, and you've been a real real Mbolo fan throughout this tournament. During the game you tweeted that he had at that point anyway the best expected threat numbers or XT numbers in the tournament so far. Please, would you explain to me exactly what that means? Yeah, so expected threat is kind of an extension really of expected goals, but instead of just looking at shots and their quality, it looks at actions really, mainly passes and carries and dribbles and how likely they 
increase your side's chance of scoring. So it's all centred around ball progression, um, which are the players who receive in good areas, who pass to good areas, who carry the ball into good areas, and putting a number against that. And Mbolo is someone who we've seen a lot from deep, um, doing a lot of defensive work, but when he picks up the ball there, he will run with it upfield. He receives in good areas as well, kind of in tandem with Seferovic, uh, and also has got a fairly good eye for a pass at times too from deep as well. And all of that combined is that when you look at these expected threat numbers, which is something I was I was toying with, uh, toying around with on Sunday, um, he's top, or he was top then when I was looking, out of all players. And I think the player after him who was second was Daniel James, which is really interesting and again kind of shows the the counter-attacking force that he's had. Uh, I think he's had been a, a really good crosser at times in this tournament too, so that one certainly passed the eye test. But one thing on Mbolo I also was interested by against France is that he'd almost drop back into the left side of midfield out of possession and, and Shakiri would kind of go up top with Seferovic which I thought was interesting especially given you know normally again this is centre forward on paper but would drop into kind of a left midfield role to to kind of block in that area and then also would go more central when they win the ball back too so um, yeah he's he's been one of the most interesting players of the tournament for me and by the the more fancy cutting edge numbers um, is putting up really great performances as well. Uh, Michael to what extent was did Didier Deschamps' decision-making at fault for, well, what happened on uh, on Monday night in terms of France throwing away that lead? Yeah, I think in general Deschamps gets far too much stick, but I was really, really surprised he changed system. I just don't think this is the type of side that is all about that, really. I think it was about a settled formation, a settled system, broadly settled group of players. So I know he was having problems at fullback, but I thought he was just going to play a centre-back out of position. I mean kind of what they do anyway arguably um, I think that would have been a better solution than going to back three which they just they just didn't look comfortable in in any aspect really I think it, it harmed the defence it harmed the midfield forwards were okay as well yeah in flashes were okay but but without the ball I thought they were really poor and I thought actually the half time change he then went to a really attacking kind of 4-2-4 and I thought that then really exposed the fullbacks and actually they were lucky to still be in the game because Pavard was isolated, made that foul for the penalty. If the penalty goes in, obviously it's it's two nil and and probably get through without penalty Switzerland. But yeah, it was for me it was a big big surprise from Deschamps. He's just he's just not that kind of manager. So it was a a huge surprise and I think a huge error. I must say, yes. I think it's interesting that Deschamps went to a back three because I mean, looking at the numbers on on FB Ref, I think the only times he's really used a back three of late is against Sweden and against Croatia in the Nations League and. It kind of feels that if you're going to change a shape to try and counteract what the opponent's doing tactically, but your original shape is so well-grooved and so well-known, and I don't think France have kind of really rigidly stuck to a a 4-3-3 or a 4-2-3-1, but I think probably going from a back four to a back three is more of a potentially a bigger kind of change at the back than it is changing the kind of forward formation or the formations of the midfielders and the forwards. It just seems like an an odd choice to kind of do something that really doesn't have much practice, at least in games, uh, and is a bit of a gamble versus again this this squad is so has so much quality has so much you know individual quality collective quality it should do anyway that you should be able to ride out that and just be better than the opposition than having to to tweak to or kind of bow to what they're doing especially a side like Switzerland or with due respect but um, obviously it, it failed on the night but that aside I think we do have to highlight how good Paul Pogba's been in this tournament. I know it's kind of the very mainstream thing to point out, but I just think that his his kind of highlight reel of touches and involvements and however you want to label it uh, from the game were just 
fantastic and he's been a real joy to watch it's been Pogba probably at his best it, it feels like it's almost watching him like he was at Juve like the way he, he had time and space to pick out passes a lot more so in the Premier League he was inviting pressure on far less than he would do in the Premier League and I just think that this is the best iteration of Pogba and we probably won't see that so long as he does play for Man United because the the league that they play in is just so different really um, there's more pressure there's more intensity and he's someone who thrives without that so um, perhaps it will change perhaps I'm wrong but I just feel that this Pogba is the the best Pogba yeah really fascinating both of those games I must admit I'm really excited about this game between Spain and Switzerland more so than than when we started recording the pod because from what you guys have said about the two sides I mean there's, there's clear there's a few clear avenues of, of attack potentially for Switzerland where Spain are vulnerable and where Switzerland have looked quite strong, both in terms of creating good crossing opportunities for Severovic, but also in Bolo um, looking to sort of continue his good form, uh, maybe up against a, a fairly high line that Spain have been playing as well. But also in terms of, of, of Switzerland, can they be compact enough when Spain have spells of possession and deny them basically those those opportunities that they seem to be able to create at will? It's a, it's a fascinating game. Michael, is there anything else you wanted to add in terms of previewing this match? Uh, it's going to be a cracker on Friday afternoon. No, I think we covered it fairly well. But yeah, the interest for me, Switzerland going forward. Interesting conundrum, isn't it? Spain, very high defensive line because they don't like defending cross balls. So do they focus more on going in behind with Mbolo or do they focus more on getting the ball into crossing situations for Seferovic? They've got a bit of both, haven't they? So um, yeah, really interesting in this game. Should be fun. I've enjoyed watching Switzerland and I will enjoy watching that game for sure on Friday. Belgium-Italy follows that and we previewed the Belgium-Portugal round of 16 game on the last pod. It was a game which Belgium edged 1-0. Torgan Hazard's swerving shot was too much for Rui Patricio in the Portuguese goal. Michael, what were your notes on this game? It, it probably wasn't one of the standout ties, you'd say, of the last round. I was really disappointed with it, actually. Really disappointed, Ali. I thought two decent sides, but I thought the key factor or the key theme was just all the attacking was so individualistic. You know, there was no combination play. There were no real good relationships, aside actually from the two Hazard brothers, as you might expect. But, I mean, it just felt like all the key attacking players were just exasperated with one another. Lukaku was was running into the channels and was constantly just not getting the service and throwing his arms up in the air, which obviously Cristiano Ronaldo was matching at the other end. Yeah, it was a, a strange game. I thought actually Portugal's comeback was okay. They had a couple of good chances, hit the woodwork. I thought João Felix actually had quite a good impact despite Roy Keane's analysis on ITV. But yeah, I came away from it disappointed. I just didn't think the, the level of cohesion, the level of attacking play just wasn't there for me. And obviously... Belgium lost both uh, Hazard, Eden Hazard and Kevin De Bruyne possibly out of this game. Um, and without them, really, I think there's a big step down in quality and, of course, a change in style as well. So that's, uh, that's the obvious analysis, but those injuries are really, really crucial. Tom, Portugal were a bit disappointing overall, weren't they? Uh, you know, as holders in the tournament, of course, scored a couple of nice goals at the very end of that hungry game, um, having struggled for the first, well, sort of 80% of that match. Um, in terms of this one, though, it's not as if Belgium saw it out comfortably. But And you wonder whether if Portugal had played a little better, Belgium were, I wouldn't say there for the taking, but, you know, a, a vulnerable lead they had. It was one of the most chaotic approaches to game management I think I might have ever seen. Belgium just kind of locked up attack and didn't really add much in terms of shots and XG after scoring. And then what we saw after that was just the game was so open and end-to-end. We saw a few chances for, uh, a few really good chances, really, I think, for Portugal, or at least good breaks. Uh, and then the substitutions 
I think the the most interesting one which caught my eye was Yannick Ferrer Carrasco coming on, who is someone who I think he's not exactly one who's going to keep control of possession and try and kill a game and slow it down. He just stuck to what he always does, which is kind of chaos and running and dribbling and just trying to do very flashy, good attacking things. I think he had six touches when he came on, gave the ball away on four of them. One was a failed pass, one was a failed take on. One time he got dispossessed, uh, another the kind of ball hit him in the shins and, and they lost possession. So I just, yeah, I thought, again, a bit like France, for all the quality in the Belgian squad, there just wasn't enough kind of quality on show in terms of like managing the game and, and just slowing it down. And that's something that England, as boring as it might be at times, I think have done really well. Michael, you were at it- Italy against Austria uh, at Wembley. I like the idea that you make sure when you go to these games that you sit as high up as possible, in the gods, as they say, so that you can get that real tactics cam uh, and analyze the game as you watch was that actually the case you can't really pick where you sit at these games when you get a, a ticket ali sadly not um, even at zonal to... underscore marking can you not put that in no, additional info that... I, I need to be right up there i wish but it's a bit of a lottery isn't mm. it you know like a like a penalty shootout obviously <laughs> um but no, it was a funny game italy, i didn't think italy were impressive it was the first game away from rome i think that is interesting it's maybe interesting in, in terms of obviously england have played all their games so far um, at home and will now be on uh, on neutral territory against Ukraine for the first time. And I think home advantage we've seen throughout last season and we've seen it this tournament is really important. And I think Italy were much less confident going forward in this game. I think their weakest performance so far by by quite a long way. The interesting thing here, I think, was that Mancini probably doesn't have any real, real superstars going forward, but he's got a, a bench that is quite similar in terms of quality to his team. And I thought he could bring on, I think, five subs he used um, without too much drop in quality. And indeed, with Federico Chiesa in particular, you know, a, a real game-changing contribution. He scored the opener, and I think there's a very good chance that he'll keep his place for this quarterfinal as well. In terms of looking at Belgium and Italy and how they match up with each other, Belgium have been playing this 3-4-3 system, kind of unusual, or at least in comparison to a team like Germany, for example, who've played a, a similar system, but with you know more traditional flying wing-backs, whereas Belgium have had Torgan Hazard playing left wing-back, probably not his, his natural position, and they've got different options, as discussed last time. Could the fact that Italy are playing 4-3-3 have an impact on how this game plays out in terms of sort of key areas of the pitch tactically that will dictate how this plays? Yeah, well, it's interesting because Italy, I think, have at times overloaded teams a little bit in the same way that Germany have done against Portugal with the, the wing back on the far side because they push Spinazzola so far forward and Barella forward as well from midfield so they end up forming a front five. I think that was crucial in the Chiesa goal because he was just so far, you know, had licence to stay out on the flank and they had a man over and that's where the goal came from. But I think Belgium could be quite well suited to dealing with that with their back five. I don't think their wing backs are that good defensively at times. I mean, talking Hazard, I'm not sure I think of him as great defensively in one-on-one situations because going the other way, he's very good. So a battle between him and Chiesa, who were the two players who scored the openers in their respective uh, second round games, could be interesting. But um, I think Belgium look good defensively. I must say, I really have never been a fan of um, Thomas Bermarlin over his career. I gather he's not even having a great time of it over in Japan now. But uh, I thought he dealt with Ronaldo absolutely brilliantly. So credit where credit's due. And uh, if you can cope with Ronaldo, you should be able to cope with respect with uh, Immobile as well. And how do you cope with the absence, uh, as far as I understand it, Tom, of Kevin De Bruyne? I think um, Inhas has definitely ruled out. I think that De Bruyne isn't a certainty to miss, but it's highly likely, I think. But yeah, looking at his numbers, he's created 37% of all of Belgium's chances, which is the highest kind of creative burden of any player at the tournament and just goes to show you how 
crucial he is. You know, a lot of strength and depth, but I think he's so hard to replace. And they're obviously so reliant on individual performers turning up that I think that really could could dictate this game. So yeah, I, I, looking at the the options off the bench, maybe Mertens comes in. Yeah, I, I don't know really which way to call it, but it's certainly a huge loss for Belgium, and definitely something that's going in, in Italy's favour. Going to be a tight one, this. I think based on, not that you guys care or asked, I think based on what you've said, I might be leaning towards Italy edging this one, to be honest. Um, you guys talking about the, the game management of Belgium and how their game, which they were leading against Portugal, was kind of turned into a suboptimal second half of, of kind of chaos, which they rode out. Uh, I sort of lean towards Italy maybe being able to manage this um, maybe a little bit, bit better based on what you've said. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Czech Republic are playing against Denmark. This is a, a fascinating one. I mean, Denmark's story of the tournament for sure uh, at the moment and their round of 16 game was a 4-0 win uh, against Wales. This one feels like quite a long time ago. Michael, r- remind me how this fairly one-sided scoreline actually came about. Well, the key tactical move was uh, Denmark shifted Christensen into midfield, which I thought was interesting. I mean, they've been very flexible at this tournament. They were going to play 4 2 3 one with Ericsson as the 10, obviously when Ericsson wasn't available, they shifted to a 3-4-3 and then they shifted to more of a 4-3-3 to this one. Um, they've got some very good ball-playing centre-backs, Denmark. Probably always have produced good ball-playing centre-backs, actually. And, and that was particularly important here. Wales, I just don't think, had any answer to that. Got overloads in midfield. And it was quite a big difference in quality in the end, really. I didn't think the scoreline was an unfair reflection of the game, albeit Denmark are scoring a lot of goals from kind of long-range positions, which Tom is presumably seething about. <laughs> I was going to say, Tom, there, there's a lot to like. I think there's quite a lot to like about this Denmark side, but in analytics terms, they are bucking some trends. Really, for the for the attacking purists, they're just a lot of fun. Like I think they spend more of their time in, in the opposition half and box than any other team. They have over 20 shots a game on average, which, you know, that can never be a bad thing. But yeah, I think the quality sometimes is, is a little suspect. But uh, no, I'm I'm all for long shots. Um, I won't be getting into to that debate anytime soon. But yeah, I I think the biggest standout for me for Denmark, I think Damsgaard's getting quite a lot of credit. I think Pierre-Emile Hoybier is always someone who's seemingly like the starter or the initiator of a move and always involved. I think he's been involved in 31 moves leading to shots, which is more than any other player at the tournament. And it's similar to him for, for Tottenham. I think he was the most involved player in shots in the league uh, in 2021 as well. So shows just how good a midfielder he is, really. Uh, I think him and Delaney is is a pretty solid partnership. And then Wacky Mailer on the left, arguably one of the players of the tournament. Uh, a real key theme is just the the kind of over-reliance on one side of uh, of a side's kind of wing-back or full-back. He's 
he's that guy for for Denmark. He's really high up in progressive carries um, in terms of getting the ball upfield five yards or more and progressive passes as well. He, he ranks very favourably. I think he's 11th out of all players at the Euros. And similarly, you know, he's he's like the the Spinazzola, the Dumfries, the probably the Luke Shaw for, for England, these guys who one side is is tipped in the balance over the other and they just add so much to the side's attacking output. So um, I think those two are probably the key for Denmark. Really. They've got Czech Republic to get past if they want to advance to the semi-finals. The Czechs in dreamland after beating the Netherlands. Uh, what did they do right, Michael? We, we can't ignore the fact that De Ligt's red card had a huge impact on the result, but Czech Republic managed the game very well from that point. Yeah, they did, and I think they'd, they'd nullified certain key aspects of the Dutch play, particularly Wijnaldum. I mean, Thomas Hollish in uh, the holding midfield role was basically man-marking him, and um, I can't quite remember the stats, but Wijnaldum's pass total was incredibly low, something like he... Did he complete three passes before half time or something? Yeah, something like that. He went from I having. I mean, that's amazing. Yeah, it's it's mad. I think he went from having 40, 46 or more touches in his previous three games to only, I think, 29 in the whole of this game. So he was really cut off at source and one touch in the box, no shots, no chances created. So, yeah, Hollish completely did a number on him, really. And, yeah, and I think that was kind of part of the, the wider approach. It was almost like the man marking midfield, which you do sometimes see. At international tournaments, it's kind of considered quite a basic approach, I suppose. But I think internationally, sometimes that does... It's just easy easy to coach in uh, in quite a simple way. So, yeah, I thought they were impressive in some ways. But like you say, Ali, I think the red card completely changed everything. And I think they will struggle to play the same way quite as effectively against Denmark who to me just seem a more fluid side a more flexible side I think they've got more solutions we saw that against Wales as, as I said earlier whereas I think Holland were quite um, probably only had one way to play I suppose in a certain sense so um, yeah I, I would have Denmark as quite strong favourites for this uh, I'm not convinced the Czechs are a particularly great side with all due respect I think they make life difficult for opponents but uh, I think Denmark will have too much quality This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Okay, the last quarterfinal is Ukraine against England. Didn't think we needed to start with England versus Germany chat because no doubt there's been plenty of that across all podcasts. The Athletics' own England podcast, just one of of many good options for you at the moment during the Euros once you've listened to us. Uh, But it was England 2, Germany 0. One German newspaper, Michael, called it grass chess, uh, which I loved. It it definitely felt that way from the stands, although I've never watched a chess match that has made me think I'm about to throw up every 30 seconds as much as as this (laughs) one, but maybe less emotionally invested generally. Um, Three at the back against three at the back with the midfielders of Rice, Phillips, Kroos and Goretzka. Uh, this was never likely to be a game with a lot of action in the final third, was it? So it was a, it was a little bit of a come down in, in footballing terms uh, after what we'd seen on Monday night. Yeah, it felt like a different sport, <laughs> didn't it really? I mean, um, chess. yeah, it was the, yeah, well, exactly. Yeah, good. That's a good shout by that newspaper. Yeah, I mean, Southgate changed the system. I think we all expected he would change the system 
he's, he's always wanted to have the option of playing through at the back and after looking at how Germany did against Portugal, if you weren't going to use it for this game, you were never going to use it. I thought it worked really well down the flanks. I mean, I don't think uh, Kimmich or uh, Robin Gossens had any real influence on the game. I've actually done an analysis um, on the website at the moment. There's also another good article by uh, Mark Carey, who's been on this podcast a couple of times. His analysis in particular focuses on really how far back uh, Gossens was pushed and he, he didn't really influence the game at all in the final third. I must say, having watched the game back uh, this morning, as we recording this the day after the game I didn't realise Germany actually played really well in the first half I thought the first 10 minutes they completely dominated they created I'd say four pretty or three pretty good chances and then there was another one where Goretzka played the ball forward to Werner and a really good first touch would have put him on uh, put him in one against one so I thought actually Germany did okay I think towards the end of the game obviously they were maybe flagging maybe fatiguing there were more gaps that opened up for England and I think the introduction of Grealish was probably perfectly timed but yeah having watched the game back it was uh, not necessarily a 2-0 game I would say agree with that Tom yeah absolutely I think if you look at the XG score for the game it's about level I think around 1.3 1.4 each which tells you you know this was pretty much a, a coin flip really and like Michael says it's not it wasn't overly a, a comfortable 2-0 win there's basically two big chances it, for each team I, I, I'm, I'm counting I'm not sure if Opta do I'm counting Sterling and Kane's opportunity as big chances and Muller's certainly Werner's maybe just on the cusp uh, is that a kind of decent reflection of it two big chances of which uh, England took theirs and Germany didn't yeah I think there's that I think the other one which we're maybe forgetting is right in uh, first half stoppage time Harry Kane's kind of heavy touch when he could have a bit lighter slotted it straight past Neuer but uh, I think Hummels came through and, uh, and saved that but um, yeah I, I think that's how it played out I mean England really in, in most of the games up to this point have just had two or three like you say Ali just very very good chances I thought Grealish's introduction is probably the best way for England to use him kind of grind down the opposition and then bring him on as a flurry of energy uh, and dynamism and he can kind of combined really well with Luke Shaw but yeah looking at the numbers I think Grealish had three touches in the attacking third and obviously one of which is the assist another of which I think was feeding the ball in to or, Shaw. or part of the attack yeah. as well yeah exactly so um, yeah it just goes to show you don't need a ton of the ball you just need to find those moments capitalise them uh, and try and you know score the chances that you, you create from that I mean England are up against Ukraine who following this game beat Sweden 2-1 after extra time this was a, another game we had three of them of the eight that was pretty heavily impacted by a red card at 1-1. The game headed into extra time. It means that Ukraine have played four games in this tournament with some pretty mixed results, you have to say. This win, uh, a win against North Macedonia uh, and two other defeats in the group stage. I'm finding it hard to work this team out and I guess the question, Michael, is how do you think Ukraine have been playing? Are they uh, are they a, a quarter finalist in you know? Are they a Euros quarter finalist on merit, or has it been a little bit luck of the draw so far? I think a little bit luck of the draw, a little bit luck of the format of the competition. We have to say as well. I mean, they're not a bad side. They've looked good in patches. I thought that game against the Netherlands, their first game, wasn't it? I thought at times they played some good football there. They've got good ball players. They've got an incredible number of left-footed players. Someone told me they had fifteen of the twenty. Six-man squad was left-footed, I think they said. I haven't verified those numbers, I have to say, but um, this was actually just in the pub <laughs> last night after the England game. So it's, it's not a particularly trusted source, but uh, it was coming from someone who I would trust. But um, yeah, I mean, they're interesting. I think that they're, they're tactically flexible as well. I think they can play in a, 
a couple of different systems. But uh, from the England perspective, you have to say it's a good draw. I mean, to, to get Ukraine in the quarterfinal, with respect, is the kind of side you'd expect to encounter in the group stage, maybe the second round. Um, but I think England have done quite well to get Ukraine at this stage. Really good insight into Michael's pub sessions. Just the sort of place where you might find yourself discussing what percentage <laughs> of an international squad uh, uses their left foot. Brilliant. Brilliant. Uh, Tom, uh, Ukraine, I, I didn't mean to besmirch them when when posing that question to Michael because I agree in that game against Netherlands they looked very lively in patches and they had good moments last night as well Zinchenko's goal was nice and the winning goal as well was a a brilliant ball in from Zinchenko I mean what or who I suppose do England have to look out for here which of the left footers yeah my kind of pub led analysis made me think at the time watching Ukraine that they're a side which were relying a fair amount on crosses mainly just looking at uh, the, the Zinchenko ball which was incredible for the for Dobvik's winner against Sweden but I just think at times teams which when they don't have like a, a single way where they consistently look to create chances perhaps that speaks to the the quality of the squad slash just they have to make the most of the opportunities that that they get and the possession when when and where they get it and I think they rely on a lot of the individualism of Andrea Malenko who had a fantastic assist if you've not seen it go and go and hunt it out because it's kind of incredible Trevella outside of the ball pass to Zinchenko who smashes it in and he just looks like a different completely different player for Ukraine Malinovsky as well he's created more chances than than Yarmolenko so I think it's largely a team that's that's re- requiring the creativity of those two in the running and, and kind of qualities of Zinchenko in midfield as well. So I think those are probably the main three players. But in terms of their kind of tactical identity, I was looking at the data and it's kind of hard to, to find anything that sticks out about them. They don't look to have too much of the ball. They don't dominate in the final third too much. They don't press too intensely. So they just, yeah, they just seem like a fairly standard team but which don't have like a, a defining characteristic. Whereas, you know, the, the Spain's dominant possession and, and Denmark, I think, of a far more free-flowing attack. So, um, yeah, I think expect them to look to create across the pitch, but um, relying mainly on on those three players for that spark of uh, of something creative. I think one of England's key characteristics is how methodical they've been, which I wasn't necessarily expecting. And as a fan of of a team that plays like that, you do have to be quite patient and quite forgiving at times. I mean. We saw in the group stage, no goals conceded um, in two of the games. They went 1-0 up in the first half and and pretty much squashed those games. Didn't really go chasing a second goal. Against Germany, there was one really egregious example of a a brilliant counter-attack transition opportunity that England had at 1-0 that was like very visibly almost rejected by the players in a way that suggested they'd you know, they were under strict instructions not to get carried away, not to get overexcited uh, uh, in transition. And then, of course, the second goal, which they did score, it was almost unavoidable because of Shaw's you know, quick thinking in midfield to intercept that pass. And at the point where Shaw had the ball, there was only really one way to go, and that was forward. It was almost like they scored that in spite of, of their instructions. Michael, England are strong favourites to beat Ukraine, uh, likely to play against a team who will try their best to deny England opportunities and the onus will be on England to sort of seize control of the game. Do you think that they'll have to be more adventurous in possession or do you think we will continue to see, regardless of the opponent, this methodical style? No, I think they'll be a little bit more open. I think the the side will change. I don't think he'll use three-man defence again. He might not. We really are in the the era of flexi Gareth Southgate, aren't we? You think he's going to switch it up again? I think it was a very specific tactic to play against Germany's 3-4-3. I think... And, and I would expect there to be a shift back to 4-3-3 or 4-2-3-1. 
And I think that means there could be, two, I think two creative players, if you like, could come in. I mean, I, I expect Trippier would drop out, Walker would shift back across and probably Mount would come back in. But I don't think it's impossible that maybe Grealish might start instead of Saka as well. I think Saka's done really well. I mean, that's why he kept his place. I think he was arguably England's brightest player in the, in the first period yesterday. But I think against a, a side likely to sit a little bit deeper, maybe a le- need a little bit more individual magic, and maybe there could be a, a place for Grealish. Personally, I think Southgate is using exactly the right moment so far in terms of uh, bringing him on from the bench. But also, I think it was right to start him against the Czech Republic as well. I think it'll probably be a broadly similar game to that. So yeah, I think there will be I think there will be changes. I think England will play more proactively than they did against Germany. I think the onus is on them to uh, to dominate. So yeah, like you say, it's been really flexible so far. Three different systems, really. 4-2-3-1, 4-3-3 and 3-4-3. And defensively, they've looked pretty good. I mean, still haven't conceded a goal. Got a little bit lucky against Germany not to concede a goal, I think it's fair to say. But um, yeah, so far, I think Southgate is uh, managing the, the tactical side of things. And I think the personnel side of things pretty well. Four intriguing matches I would suggest as we head into the quarterfinal stage. Switzerland against Spain, Belgium against Italy, Czech Republic, Denmark and Ukraine against England. Thank you guys for talking me through all four of them. I've got a really good steer on the sort of key questions I guess, the the tactical questions especially. So thank you Tom, thank you Michael. There's some tired eyes on this Zoom call listener so we're going to wrap it up there but really enjoying doing these notebook style podcasts for the Euros. Let us know how you're enjoying them. Let us know if you have any questions ahead of our next one which is just in a few days time after the quarterfinals and we'll do a very similar thing to what we've done today I'll ask the guys for their thoughts on what happens over the next few days and we'll be previewing two tantalising semi-finals no doubt as well make sure you subscribe to this podcast feed so you get all future episodes fresh as soon as they are released and do subscribe to The Athletic as well so you can make sure that you get all of Michael's writing Tom and Mark Carey's data and analytics stuff as well and so much more on site throughout the Euros and as we start to look ahead to next season, eventually, uh, theathletic.com forward slash zonal markings, the place to go to sign up if you haven't already. You'll pay just £1 a month for the first six months of your annual subscription. That's it from us. Hope you've enjoyed the pod. Can't wait for you to join us again next time on the Zonal Marking Podcast Euros Notebook. The Athletic. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.